A reading from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. my hand 
precious Lord, lead me I have one so I can know what I'm reading. <laughs> it always happens that children, I don't know, they take it from me. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Got it. I should have just had Renee preach the sermon now since she's on a roll. Thank you, Renee, very much. Our second reading is uh, this morning is from the Old Testament. So our first from the New, our second from the Old. This is from the small little book of Jonah, we think written around the 6th century B.C., um, very old story, uh, you've got the outlines of it uh, as a review with the children, but just as a reminder, quickly God comes to Jonah, tells Jonah his assignment is to go to Nineveh, that great city, capital of Assyria, Iraq today, um, to prophesy, which is not to predict the future in the Bible, but to speak God's word into a real situation. Uh, that word is usually not well received. Prophets were not popular people because they, they spoke God's truth into situations where nobody wanted to hear it. But this time, Jonah didn't even want to do it. Jonah said, no, runs away, uh, hops the first ship in the opposite direction. A storm comes up. The sailors figure out that it's Jonah who is the problem. Jonah offers to jump overboard. They throw him overboard. He's swallowed up by a dagadol, large fish. He's in there for three days. Um, and now we pick up with the 10th verse of the second chapter, or at the very end of chapter 2, reading through essentially chapter 3 to the first verse in chapter 4. It's very short. Hang in there. But listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out on dry land. That's an awesome word, spew, in Hebrew or any language. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So this time Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. And Jonah cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Sackcloth and ashes, the garb, the garments the fashion of repentance. And then the king had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything they shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. That must have been looked interesting. 
and they shall cry mightily to God and shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change God's mind. God may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Here's a pretty amazing verse in Scripture. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and God did not do it. But this was displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts upon this story, this word from you to us this morning, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I said a little bit earlier, uh, we're at the time of the year when uh, we are trying to figure out how to live with this, this Savior King, this Jesus, this Emmanuel, God with us, who has arrived at Christmas, who calls us to follow. Both of our stories this morning are are more or less call narratives. Um, So the question is, what next? What do we do now that that God has placed a call upon our hearts? Well, according to these two examples of Scripture, one from the New Testament in Mark, our first, and the other from Jonah in the Old Testament, our second, there are a couple of ways you can go when God calls you. The first is to submit, more or less, completely to God's wishes, to the the call that God places on our hearts, to see God's purposes for our lives clearly and to act accordingly. And all of us have met people like that at least once, right? Spiritual giants, people who get it, but we meet them rarely because they are rare. And here they are in Mark's story, at least the way he tells it, Jesus is walking along the beach and that of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a large lake in what is now northern Israel, kind of as we almost to Syria and Lebanon. It is a beautiful place. Um, and he sees James and John in the boat that their father owns in this fishing business, and he says, follow me. And James and John get up and follow him. Then he sees Peter and Andrew follow me, and and they get up and follow him. How saintly of them. No words, no questions, no hesitation, just follow. That's one way, apparently, to respond to God's invitation into our lives. And again, apparently it happens. I've met people like this, but they're rare. I'm not one of them. The other way we can respond to God's call in our lives is more maybe realistic. It is Jonah's way, and it is kind of a lifetime standoff with God. The meeting of the collision, really, of two inexorable forces. God stubbornly loving me and me stubbornly refusing to be loved. God taking the, the, the rejection and the ignoring and the insults and still ready to shower me again and again with grace and with welcome. And me saying, I don't need your grace until I need it. I got this until I don't. Two inexorable forces colliding until one side gives in. A lot more of us 
live our relationship with God that way, I think. It's a lot more like a real relationship, too, like a marriage, for example. Two inexorable, stubborn forces colliding until one side gives in. That's something I've come to love about the Bible when I actually started reading it uh, that you don't hear a lot of church folks talking about, and that is it's realism. The truth is the Bible, don't show, the Bible doesn't show us too many uh, people who respond in the way the disciples do in this story from Mark. Just without a word, without a question, without a problem, just get up and go. Super spiritual people, apparently, at least in that moment. We know the disciples have issues later, very human issues, faults. But at this moment, they seem clear-minded and resolute. They're just going to follow. But most of us are more like Jonah, really. Nobody wants to be like Jonah. It's embarrassing because Jonah is stubborn, which means he causes his own problems. He brings it on himself. He makes life tough for himself. But that's what most of us do. It is one of the most colorful and memorable stories in Scripture. Just four chapters, as I've said, Jonah is the reluctant prophet, the angry prophet, the prophet who tries to run from God, the prophet who never buys into what God is trying to do, even when he finally allows God to work through him. Even after God works a miracle through him, Jonah is still not happy about it. And yet God chooses him. God works through him of all people, gives Jonah a plum assignment to go speak to the people of Nineveh, this giant, powerful city, capital of a major empire, which apparently is a little bit like New York City, Moscow, San Francisco, and Las Vegas, all rolled up into one. A lot of bachelor parties go to Nineveh. Tell them, God says to Jonah, that they'd better straighten up, start walking in my ways, or there will be consequences. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Think Jericho. But Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So he answers God's call on his life and on his heart in a very realistic way by hopping the next ship sailing in the opposite direction of where God wants him to go. All, he want, God wants Jonah to go east to Nineveh, which is very landlocked. If you think about the Fertile Crescent, Iraq today. Jonah goes toward the Mediterranean, hops a ship in port, and heads west to Tarshish. He then proceeds to get himself thrown overboard by sailors who would like to survive this horrible storm that has come up. He then gets himself swallowed up by a big fish, where he is forced to reside inside the fish's belly for three smelly, slimy days, only to be spewed up on shore, landing back on the beach with God waiting there, arms folded, if God has arms. It reminds me of the summer as a teenager when with my two very best friends, we're still my two best friends, we got a little ahead of ourselves age-wise and decided to experiment with... I'm not going to say exactly what. Um, you can fill in the blanks, but it's something that I shouldn't have at the age of 14. Um, here's how it worked. Uh, it was a hot, hot summer as it gets in Spokane, 100 degrees, no humidity. It's a dry heat, but it was very hot. 
7 in the morning, 100 degrees. Uh, but this is on a Friday evening, and I got a phone call, and on my way out the door, I yelled over my shoulder, I'm going to Brian's house, I'll be back soon. What I didn't tell my parents was that Brian's parents were out of town. And so Brian, Steve, Russ, and I, on two 10 speeds, four guys, two 10 speeds, I was about as big as I am now, not as wide, but as tall, uh, rode down to the store, stood out front asking adults to make purchases on our behalf, which finally some not-so-moral guy did, uh, handed us a large load of, of, of uh, grocery store items. And um, we, four guys on two ten speeds with our arms full, rode back through our own neighborhood like idiots, uh, got to Brian's house, frivolity commenced, I never was very good at that. I never have gotten very good at it. But let's just say I called my parents, didn't let them speak, and said, I'm spending the night at Brian's. And I, I'm saying that more clearly than I did then. Next morning, I thought I could, before they woke up, sneak home. I jump over the back fence, ready to sneak through the back door quietly and get to my bedroom, my sanctuary. But then when I jumped over the back fence, got up, turned around, there they were like American Gothic, with a rake and a hoe. And they knew what had happened. They didn't say a word. They just said, you're working in the yard all day. It was already 100. And, you know, it was a rough day. <laughs> uh, but that's how I imagine uh, this story ending. Um, God, if God were a person standing on the beach waiting for Jonah, who finally gets done with what he's been doing, he staggers out of the water, and God says, if you, are you done now? Did you get out of your system? Go to Nineveh. You still have to work in the garden. And Jonah does what most of us do. He reluctantly now takes up his task, his assignment, um, and he goes, and he speaks to Nineveh. And as we read, Nineveh, much to Jonah's and maybe even God's surprise, listens to the message. And, and, and Jonah's king and all the people, every human being, every animal, repents and turns from the ways that were leading to their own destruction and somehow rediscovers themselves. There's that great line in the story of the prodigal son, when the young son who spent all of his father's inheritance, insulted his father, spent it on wine, women, and song, and the text says, he came to himself and turned back for home. Nobody wants to go through what Jonah goes through, but as I said, we tend to bring it on ourselves by, ourselves by not readily answering God's call, and yet that's who we are. We're, we're human beings. It's normal, and the Bible wants us to know that, I think. Jonah runs from God, gets himself in all kinds of trouble, barely survives. Um, the story of a Sunday school teacher asking her class, and what do we learn from the story of Jonah and the big fish? And little eight-year-old Susie thinks for a moment, and she answers, always travel by air? That's a good thing to know from this text, but there's probably even more important lessons to be learned here. The first is that this story does tell us something about us. We all try to escape God and God's relationship with, 
with us, God's call on our lives, but it is impossible to get away from the destiny that God has chosen for you. That's the first lesson. There is no place that God isn't, including the dark, deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and our life story. There's no place that God isn't, and yet Jonah tries to flee, tries to get away, tries to be alone, tries to do it all alone. We all do that. And the 139th Psalm, one of my favorites, one of so many people's favorites, uh, says so eloquently what Jonah finds out. The psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the underworld, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. I come to the end of the world, of my life, the psalmist writes, I am still with you. And that's wisdom earned from a lifetime of stubbornly running away from God. Not toward God, away. The story tells us something about ourselves, but it also tells us something about God. I love The Far Side, Gary Larson's cartoon, the one that depicts a bearded man standing at his own front door. He's dripping wet, and his clothes are in shreds. His wife opens the door to him, and she looks at this man with disgust and says, for crying out loud, Jonah, three days late, covered with slime, smelling like the inside of a fish, and what story do I have to swallow this time? Well, the Jonah story is kind of hard to swallow, not just for the fish, but for us. It's a little bit crazy. Uh, there's a story of a 19th century guy, James Bartley, who supposedly was swallowed by a giant sperm whale, and that became kind of a, a, a reported as true in the late 19th century. Uh, but it's not possible based on the four, as we all know, sperm whales have four chamber stomachs, right? You know, The first one crushes, the second one dissolves with the enzymes. You want to go further with this part? No? Okay. Uh, it is a hard story to swallow. It's, uh, maybe that's not the point of it, the science of it. Maybe this is um, a story about God's grace, God's love. Because let's face it, Jonah is a jerk in this story. He never stops being a jerk. He's also resourceful. He's a survivor, definitely. But most of all, he's stubborn like a real person, but God's love for Jonah is more stubborn. That's the good news in this story. That's what grace is, love that you don't deserve. Grace that you don't, is what you don't deserve. It's acceptance, it's welcome, it's restoration, it's forgiveness. That is who God is. Today in confirmation class, we talked about who God is. How do we know who God is? Christians believe we know who God is and what God is like by looking at Jesus. And we look today at the story of the woman caught in adultery, where Jesus is presented with this person caught red-handed, doing something that by law, by biblical law, is punishable by death. They try to trick him and say, what do we do with her? And he doesn't say a word, bends down, writes something in the dirt, stands up and says, okay, let's stone her. First person who has, who's never sinned, you throw the first stone. And they all, one by one, slink away. 
We also looked at the story of the blind man, born blind at birth, who is healed when Jesus, he loves playing in the dirt, apparently. Again, bends down, spits in the dirt, makes like mud, and then plasters it on the guy's eyes. And he can see again. All the elders and scribes, religious professionals like me, want to know, what did he do wrong? Why is he like this? And Jesus just heals the guy and just says nothing. He didn't, but, but this is going to show you who God is. The God who loves stubbornly. Jonah doesn't like anybody in Nineveh. He's kind of kind of a Ninevist, racist. He has an attitude toward them like a lot of people have toward illegal immigrants in this country today or people who are different, think differently, whatever it might be. Um, the Bible scholar William Neal uh, in Harper's Bible Commentary describes Jonah as a man who is the embodiment of intolerance, bigotry, and lack of human sympathy. Do you know anybody like Jonah? Is there any Jonah in me or you, perhaps? God's love and grace, this text today tells us, are so stubborn. How stubborn are they? I'll tell you. They're so stubborn, they don't just work on stubborn people, God's love and grace. They work through us, stubborn people. That's what happens with Jonah. Jonah's still not into it. And God uses Jonah to work this amazing miracle. And there's some, this really, this text, which is so incredible. When God saw what the people of the king of Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind. Remember how I said one option we've been given today for a relationship with God is to experience it as the collision of two inexorable forces where one eventually gives way. It's God who gives way. It's God who says, I love you too much to let you go, to punish you. Consequences are consequences, and they're not easy. But you'll never be without my love. And Jonah, the text says, in another fascinating verse in the Bible, after this amazing miracle of love and acceptance and grace and forgiveness, Jonah, the text says, was greatly displeased and became angry. Isn't that how we feel when people who don't deserve something get something? When we think that they should really be punished? As long as we don't do what they did. <laughs> Punish them. Jonah is displeased and angry. He says, oh Lord, oh Lord, he prays, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was at home? That was not why I fled to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And that bugs me, Jonah says. And then God says to Jonah, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right hand, and many cattle as well. Apparently God loves cattle too. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Parentheses, no matter what they may have done. God's love is a stubborn love. God loves us anyway. As Barbara Brown Taylor, the amazing preacher and biblical scholar, says, as far as I'm concerned, the book of Jonah has the best line in the Bible, and it does when God says to Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city too? 
They're not Jewish. They're not well-behaved. They're not moral. But I love them, too. That's who I am. There's nowhere that God is not. That's one lesson for this morning. And the other is God's stubborn love is more stubborn than my stubborn independence. And thank God for that. To use a double negative, if you'll give me permission, there is no one that God does not love. Just like there's nowhere that God is not. Double negatives sometimes have to be used. There is no one that God does not love, and that includes you. Because God is more stubborn. And we can be grateful for that.